Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast, brought to you in partnership with Frame.io. My name is Steve Hallfish. I'm a feature film and documentary editor. Art of the Cut just celebrated its eighth anniversary, having interviewed over 330 of the world's best editors in film, TV, and docs about the art and craft of editing. If you're interested in reading this interview with visual support and clips and trailers, head on over to blog.frame.io, where there's a ton of great expert content for filmmakers of all types. Today, we're speaking with William Hoy, ACE, and Tyler Nelson about editing Matt Reeves' The Batman. I've spoken with both of these editors in the past, William most recently for his work on The Call of the Wild, and then War of the Planet of the Apes before that. Tyler has long worked with David Fincher, and I've spoken to him about editing Mindhunter. William's other credits include Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, 300, Watchmen, Fantastic Four, and iRobot. He's also edited the TV series Star Trek The Next Generation. Tyler has also edited the film Rememory and TV series including Shadow and Bone, Tales from the Loop, and Love, Death, and Robots. He's also been a visual effects editor or assistant editor on films like The Revenant, Birdman, Gone Girl, and The Social Network. I spoke to William and Tyler via Zoom on the night The Batman premiered in theaters. There's a great moment of connection early on with Batman, who everybody knows is an orphan. And then there's a moment where he shares kind of a little bond with another orphan. And I wanted to talk about how do you know you're holding something long enough for it to be meaningful for the audience while not overstaying your welcome? I think there's a point when that sentimentality overstays itself. The kid was very good. You know, in in giving that forlorn look, and Robert Pattinson so, so great in it. So, it, you don't need much basically, because we all know the story of Batman and and his mom and dad were killed, and then then he becomes an orphan. So, I think that it doesn't take much to do that. And so, the idea that they exchange this look, you find that there's some commonality in that look, and that's. You know, as, as soon as you get that, you don't need much more than that because we want to get on our journey with the Batman. We don't want to sit on that too long. And also that moment is uh, revisited when Alfred sees him on the screen. We'll, we'll feel that in all those places. And we do that one more time uh, during the memorial for the mayor. We see that uh, the mayor's son once again. So, you know, in all those instances, it's, you don't need much because otherwise you're just overstaying your welcome for sure. You know, it doesn't say in the script, hold for three seconds. It's does <laughs> <laughs> would be a lot easier <laughs> or, or not. <laughs> right? Or not. Right. Exactly. The other thing that's not really scripted out is something like that opening travel montage is the Batman character is heading back to the Batcave for the first time in the script. What maybe a line or something like that. And then you've got a bunch of footage. How do you construct a little moment like that, like that that montage back to the Batcave? Well, I think it is trying to establish Gotham. That's the very beginning that we actually see and, and get a sense of the city. And we get a sense of where Batman or Bruce Wayne lives. We see the Wayne Tower. Those things play into the feel of the city and where he is within this part. So the the idea of how how long do you stay again you want to catch a glimpse of and and make sure that you stay long enough that it gives you that impression but 
again, you don't overstay your welcome. Like that's one shot where Bruce Wayne now, the drifter, as we call him at that point, he's driving in and we're following him on the, on his motorcycle and then tilt up to the skyline and we actually see the Wayne Tower. I mean, in some of those shots, the move of that is kind of how you dictate how, how long does he appears here and then we get out as soon as we get a sense of there's a skyline of I see the Wayne Tower. And also the the music that's playing behind it, the Nirvana song, gives us this whole atmosphere of what's going on. So as those shots got shorter, then we had to find a way to stay true to that song and still come into the music. And once we get into the Batcave, that there is music playing there and the lyrics aren't stepping on top of his voiceover. So there's other things involved there, but you know, obviously the picture and the tempo of it dictates it and all these other things are secondary. And then we have to modify it as we go. Just going back on, on the beginning of that, before we even see that he's through Wayne Tower, we, we want to like feel what this new Gotham is and also kind of highlight parts of the, the movie that you're going to see in the future. Like there are moments where we pass Gotham Square. We see that multiple times in the movie. You know, the city of Gotham is made out of a, a couple islands and, and that plays into the climactic scene. So when he's riding his bike home, that he's crossing these bridges and you get a sense that Gotham is surrounded by water and it's it's going to play into the story itself later on. You're getting a sense of the city for sure. Yeah, I remember like there's also images of homelessness. Does he drive by some homeless people or? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah. you're getting a sense of, oh, you know, all is not well in Gotham for everyone. Yes, that's right. Gotham, it's, it's always dark and it's raining and it's an oppressive place and so it's rather like seven you just i gotta get out of this place so i gotta i gotta make a change with this this place is just isn't right there's no there's no sunlight ever it's just that all comes to play as far as the the city of gotham is a character is a place that plays heavily in the movie and what's going on in batman's life and in bruce wayne's life and all the characters in it talk to me about music and temping what did you guys temp with well we were Really fortunate on this, the beginning of the shoot. I think actually before we actually start shooting, Marco Giacchino went into Abbey Road and recorded for a day. And he had already written the Bruce Wayne themes and he had written the Batman theme. He wrote a suite for Matt to listen to, to hear how thematically he saw the movie. And so we had all these different elements of the score that he went in to record. The music editor broke it all down and gave it to us as far as uh, you know the, the horn section, the percussion section, the synth section. So we had all these different things. I could play them as a whole or I could break it out. I could play the synth or we could just play the harp. They were all separated. So we worked with uh, Paul Appergren, who's our music editor, and he's a brilliant music editor. So when we first started uh, shooting, I would take some of these themes and place it in places. And so we had Michael Giacchino's music to work with. So we didn't have to go and find something that could pass off as the Batman theme as for attempt music. That part was really a gift. I mean, it's so rare that you would have something like that. So when Paul Appergren, the music editor, came on, he then began to craft it even more. And in some cases, he would blend it in with other temp scores and you wouldn't recognize it. But, you know, we had thematically our music in there, but he also segued into other pieces of music so it wasn't discernible so then became this temp score the very opening scene we had another piece of music in there before but matt on watching it he said why don't we play ave maria here and then it became part of the riddler's theme so even if you would hear a couple of those notes and that's 
the Riddler theme. Talk to me a little bit about sound effects. Did you guys get any kind of like a little toolbox of sounds or was it just sound effects that you've, that every editor and assistant editor starts to develop over the years? Well, it, it started with a bunch of temp stuff. I'm trying to remember when Will and Doug Percentine joined us, but basically it became a whole uh, conversation about what the sound of the Gotham would sound like and what the Batmobile would sound like. And those stemmed into an exploration on our sound team's side to help develop what those things were. So when we were attempting the Batmobile chase, it became like a combination of different types of cars. And, and I think the, the original concept was it, it was supposed to sound something like Dodge Challenger, you know, something like beefy, but has a whistly sound to it when it got really revved up. Once we tempt a handful of things with that Batmobile chase, then we pass the temp version of or the initial edit of that version with our temp sound design to the sound editors. And they kind of like did their exploration of what that would be. And Will Files apparently really dug into what the the sound of the Batmobile would be. I mean, the the results are pretty amazing. Yeah, the the Batmobile sounds incredible. Uh, Additionally, I, I know that Doug Murray was like really into what the sound of Gotham would be. And I think, what did he record? Like seven different types of rain. I, I can't remember. Like he, he he wanted to figure out what the like each level of rain would be and how it would be felt in different scenes. Like when we find the mayor dead, you know, you just hear it pattering on the skylight. Once we're the drifters looking in and Selena and rain's coming down, you, know, you feel it just becomes like a different character. The Gotham is a character. The rain's a character. Batmobile's a character. There's definitely a separation of what each of these characters are throughout our mm-hmm. And sound a big part in that. William, thoughts on sound, or or has Tyler covered it? <laughs> you know, when when we're working on a movie of the size that you're fortunate enough to get the sound crew on early. So you know, we talked very early on. We've worked with Will Files and Doug Murray on eight movies too. So they were eager to get their hands on something. There's a sound design that we need. I don't think you can achieve that by just the kind of generic sound effects. It has to be manufactured in, in a way. You know, we work in 5.1, you know, so, and I mix the sound in my avids uh, even for the screening. So I'm receiving all these sound effects from our sound department. It comes in in the form of 5.1 or it's stereo. But we also have, what does the uh, Riddler sound like? What does it sound like if he's in that city hall where the memorial space is? There's all this uh, opportunity to create different sounds. And there was a lot of drone sounds. I don't know if you felt it or heard it. It wasn't music. It was just this foreboding drone, especially like you, you would really feel it in city hall when Batman's walking up to Coulson and he's got that thing around his neck, you feel this kind of unease because that drone is is underneath there. So in some cases, we might lay the template for it, but the sound department took it many steps further and gave it a whole lot more depth to it. Because we were working in 5.1, you know, you could feel it in the subs or you can feel it around you instead of just everything directed in your center speakers and everything becomes all muddled. So things become spread out. So it really gives you a sense of space and and place. So I'm assuming both of you guys were cutting in 5.1. Were you at home or was this in the, at the studio someplace? We both were on location in London and then COVID happened. And so we started shooting in January and then we left in mid March. And we didn't start up again until August, but when we started up, 
we started in our homes, we were working remotely. At that point, there was no reason to be working in 5-1 because there was going to be nobody in our rooms watching the movie. At some point, we knew we were going back to Warner Brothers. So, so once we went back to Warner Brothers, and I think it was sometime mid-February of 2021, so we went back there. And at that point, I think we were about to be finished shooting we brought Paul Appergren, music editor, on, and we brought the sound designers on, uh, Will Files and, and Doug Murray. And then we started to get our five one tracks, at which point we had Warner Brothers and Ahula, our avid suppliers. They came in and supplied these surround speakers. So all our rooms, my room, Tyler's room, and Matt's room, which was a mirror of our rooms, all set up in five one, So that what I was doing in my room then everybody could hear the same mix that I had. So that's what we worked in 5.1, and so everybody could hear it. And we wanted to make sure that what I was mixing in my room would translate to the theaters, too. So we had Will Files come in and stand where I would be mixing, and he would listen to that, and then he'd go over to the Ross Theater and listen, and he'd come back and make some adjustments in the way it was being outputted. We got pretty close to what we were hearing in my room. Did it make a difference in the picture cut creatively? I don't think that the sound actually dictated what the cut would be. It would be the other way around, that we would make the cut, make that dramatically the way we want it, and then the sound would then amplify the ideas that we wanted to get across. I would agree with the 5-1, like not really affecting the cut, but I think that the inclusion of the sub was quite helpful for making creative choices for pre-lapse, for instance. Like there's one edit in particular that Matt was really focused on. It's like the thumb drive scene where they have the laptop on the top of the car and Gordon says, that's Iceberg Lounge. Uh, we'll never get in there without the warrants. Then we cut to Batman's face and you can see his wheels turning and he says, yeah. But as his wheels are turning, we start feeling the rumble of train tracks, that visceral cut from the pre-lap of, of train coming to the smash cut of hearing the train on the B side of that edit, that's only something you can really achieve having those subs available to you. What do those prelapse get you? In the point that Tyler just made, it sounds very much like story. Like not only is the prelapse preparing you for the next scene, but it's getting you in the headspace of what he's thinking. What are the values of those prelapse? I think it propels you into the next scene and sometimes in an unexpected way. You know, I think uh, one of the things that come to mind is uh, when the Riddler, he he throws out that viral video about uh, Bruce Wayne's family. So Bruce Wayne is watching it. He then realizes all these things that happened then that possibly his father is not the the good guy that he thought he was. And at the end, we're in a wide shot and then we, we have this kind of a, a throbbing beat coming up and you're not sure what that is. And wham, we're back into club. The pre-lap you think is telling you one thing, but it throws you into an unexpected place. There's a few places like that that we want to propel you across the cut and get you in the next scene. And hopefully sometimes in an unexpected way and, and sometimes uh, even if it's expected in, in a more powerful way, it's like, whoa. There's a great car chase with the Batmobile. I'm guessing previsd. Can you talk to me about once that previs is done, how much latitude you still have in the edit? It was definitely an evolution from its inception. And this was pre-pandemic when we shot about 25% of the movie, uh, second unit, just kind of shooting all that material. But they were emulating what was in not only just constructed previs from our previs editor, but also a handful of storyboards that were added in, in Matt's very little spare time. We, we had a guide to put all this stuff together, but it wasn't gospel. There was a lot of material, additional material that was shot that was not in the uh, previous or the storyboards. 
So it became this boatload of footage that was a really good template for constructing all the beats that were necessary for what became the, the Batmobile chase. And of course, once you have a version of the scene as it's as close to the previs and boards as you can get, then it becomes a conversation to strip it down to its bare essentials, kind of rework everything, build it to become what it, what it is that you see. There was a lot of practical photography, but then there was also a lot of stuff that was not practical. So then there's a inclusion of Postviz team to help sell those beats. And then once you tell that story, that should becomes a, a full-on CG visual effect shot. I, I think one of the things is when we got shut down because of COVID, it allowed us to get a bigger and better Batmobile chase because it was one of those things where, let's say there was no COVID, pretty sure that Batmobile chase would not look the way it does now. Because what happened was during the break, during the time we were shut down, Matt, our director, had an opportunity to go in there and revisit that scene. And I, I believe they even took some resources and put some money into it because I think in the beginning, uh, Warner Brothers said, eh, well, you can't have it. It's just too costly. And I think they reworked some things so that uh, they could actually to go in and, and shoot um, much more footage than they would have if we did not have COVID. But Matt then spent a lot of time with the stunt people, with the uh, with the previous people, and just talking about what shots he needed and what he wanted out of this Batmobile chase. So Batmobile chase was shot over a long period of time. So it wasn't like, well, we're going to shoot this Batmobile chase and it's going to be three weeks and then you guys can have it and you can put it together. Basically, they they shot from the time they started again until they're almost done, right? I mean, the, uh, yeah. the, the close-ups of you know our characters were all shot different times and we get little bits of the Maserati and we get little bits of the Batmobile sometimes. And uh, so it, it evolved, certainly, that from the previous. It, the, the end product has, I would say, has no relationship to the previous, <laughs> except for a couple of key moments, right? You know, like, it, has a <laughs> about that much and and that's how those things evolve i mean the scene together you you have to have some kind of guideline and i guess that's what the storyboard in the previous is good for up until that point but then as an editor you look at it and go, well that doesn't make any sense at all <laughs> so then you have to go in and find all these little bits and pieces and because of what they've shot and because of the resources you have at hand like say the visual effects and, and pieces that you can steal and make them work through visual effects and then you end up with the batmobile chase that we have now I mm, love it. Can you tell me how long the editor's cut was? The assembly, do you remember? I think it was like three hours and 20, something like that. I want to say 324 is the, the number that's coming to mind. Warner Brothers pretty much allowed Matt to make the movie he wanted to make. And especially when we put in front of an audience and that was was not one of the things that they talked about, which was the length of the movie. So they probably wanted more. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. The, I the second preview we had, I've never experienced anything like it. When they announced that they were going to see the Batman, the crowd got up and high fived and cheered for like five minutes. I had never seen anything like it. And that's before they saw a frame of the movie. I go, oh my god! I hope at the end of this movie they still have that reaction. <laughs> <laughs> but the studio really allowed Matt to make the movie that he set out to make and at the hand of the Warner Brothers. Certainly they had hinted, could you just, you know, see what you can do here? And But they they never said, listen, lose 20 minutes and you're good. It was not anything like that. Obviously on a lot of pictures we've had, we get that all the time. Look, it's great, but lose 10 minutes, will you? It's just like, where? 
<laughs> that was something that Bill and I talked about just the other night. It's like it is it is a long movie, but it warrants that length um, because there it's such an intricate story and everything's kind of interweaved together. You can't just take a scene or even a part of a scene sometimes because you're going to just lose a thread. And there was a lot of exploration to reduce and even just like a couple frames here and there. That's probably the last how many weeks of editing that we just tried to strip out as much as we could and sometimes it was only like two or three <laughs> seconds per reel but like it's still something it is something and you know ultimately i, I think uh, on, on that task going through just really really putting the screws to it you know and steve you, you work as an editor so you know you pick that frame when you're cutting it and just that moment and then you get to the end and you go let's just lose this two seconds the frame there and like you just and we go through the movie and we lost like seven plus minutes and you look at the moving award did that hurt it not a bit and, you know those frames that we labored over it's like okay i don't remember what it was for but you know so here we are you know we've we've lost seven and that's a big difference because you, you look in the scene and go wow that really works but can it work with just a little tighter yes it can so that part of it is we lost some time there but like tyler was saying i mean matt wrote the script and it just goes a b c d and so if we were to lose something we would have to somehow explain it and i don't believe we had the footage to put something together and have a voiceover or anything like that it's one of those situations where you would have to go and reshoot something to put that band-aid on it we didn't we didn't do that because it, it was one of those progressive kind of scripts I remember talking to Eddie Hamilton about one of the Mission Impossible movies and they wanted to cut a bunch of time. And the way they figured out how to do it was to cut out an entire country. You know, it's one of those where, okay, you've got to go to Croatia. And then when they go to Croatia, no, now you got to go to Hungary. And they, were, they just said, if we rewrite the scene over here, we'll just have them go to Hungary. And then we can cut out the entire thing about Croatia. You're like, okay, that works, I guess. So. Oh, I've heard that before on Dawn uh, of the Planet of the Apes with a scene where it was at the end of one particular scene and then we go on this journey and we establish what the the son and how the relationship with caesar and then how he gets talked into doing whatever he needs to do by the bad guy and so but it ends up at the dam so the whole idea was look the studio goes you have the dam scene here and you have the dam scene here just go damn to dam and that became our like you gotta give me a damn to dam you can't do that because there's all this development in between right it's like you lose a country he's like lose a country oh my god <laughs> When you think about losing time, it's like these nice slow moments of character development. And it's, you know, beautiful moments of looking at an orphan and seeing yourself in his shoes. And you're like, couldn't we just cut that in half where he looks at him and then get out? Like, no, because now you've lost that emotional connection to the character. And sometimes that can even make the movie seem longer because now you're not involved. It'd be heartbreaking to compromise their performance, really. I mean, Paul Daniels, amazing, as was Peter Sarsgaard, you know, Patterson. They're all such great actors and to say, wow, we're just too long here. Let's just cut this point out. And then you hurt their performance. And what's the point of that? The movie offers all this opportunity to explore these characters. And let's let's do that because we are setting up another Batman and these characters inhabit his world. So, you know, we, we take our time. Yeah, we take our time. I believe the characters are strong enough. The actors are so great that uh, you're just taken in by their performances. Yeah, absolutely. How did you guys share uh, the workload when you were in dailies? As the daily came in I'd cut a scene and then I'll be working on something and then Tyler would cut the next scene so we just kind of checkerboarded what scenes were coming in because I know that ultimately how Matt works is that he's going to run, want to run through the entire movie it's not like 
wow, these two scenes have a different editing style. And I don't think you would ever see that because, you know, we would then go through the movie and just scene by scene, cut by cut, to make sure that we have all the performance that we want and all the things that we want out of a scene. So I have the day shift. <laughs> so I get in and by dinner time, I kind of wrap up what I was doing and I fill in the visual effects editors if they need to tempt something for me or just give the visual effects department some heads up on what's coming down the line and talk to our uh, sound people, talk to the assistants before I left, at which point uh, Tyler, then after Matt's had a little dinner, that he would take over and just pick up where I left off. Once we got into director's cut, once we showed Matt the movie, Matt's very methodical. He just wants to go through and make sure that he's got all the things that he set out to get and all the performances that he tried to get on the set and to see how they're working in the movie itself. So bit by bit, it's a process for sure. So Matt was working double shifts <laughs> you guys were yeah yeah he's he's like the hardest working guy you'll ever find you know i, I get in there about 8 39 o'clock in the morning and see what tyler and matt's done the night before and get organized and if i have to talk to anybody and then matt to come about 10 o'clock we have a short conversation and then go to work it would change every night but essentially it was until he couldn't keep his eyes open anymore and had to go home Tyler, you and I have talked on previous projects, and they've all been Premiere Pro, I believe, and this must have been Avid, I'm assuming. This was Avid, yeah. <laughs> yeah. How did that go for you, and what were some things that you missed about Premiere Pro being an Avid, and what were some of the things you were like, I, I kind of like this? I've used Avid multiple times throughout my career. It's just so happened working with David Fincher and, and his team, he, uh, we used Premiere those and Final Cut 7 before that. I, I think I emailed you uh, when you were inquiring about uh, this very question, and I said I'm software agnostic, so I, I can take whatever. But I think with every NLE, there's benefits of each application and things that you loathe about those applications. I think when you're just simply cutting and working in the timeline, I love Avid. I think it's great and stable, but I'm not a fan of their visual effects tools. I, I just never really got to know them as well as I, I would hope. So I, I like sending stuff out to After Effects if I have anything complicated I want to do. I am software agnostic. I, I think that there's a lot of great stuff in all of these apps. It's just you know, when you're presented with one in particular and you have to use Avid, I'm going to use Avid. William, you've done a bunch of very big visual effects heavy films prior to this one. How does that prepare you for this? What's your experience on a visual effect film get you on another visual effect film? You know you have a visual effects department behind you. So you're able to go in and make things up if you're lacking something lacking a moment or you want to make something more impactful you know like on apes you know there was a couple of scenes where we didn't have a whole lot of backgrounds that they shot we had to reimagine this whole battle scene so uh, coming into batman i go well, we don't have any motion capture characters this is going to be easy <laughs> <laughs> wrong so <laughs> You know, just the Batmobile chase itself. I mean, there's, I would say, more subtle visual effects in there. And by the word subtle, I don't mean easy. You just have to imagine it, that at this moment, you know, the light hits his face here and that the wash of the tires and how does that look? Because you get some of that when they shot it, but nothing as dramatic as you need. You know, I think one of the more difficult things visual effects wise had to do with all the monitors and what was in the monitors in this particular movie because we get into the first Batcave when we see Bruce Wayne for the first time. None of those images were there. They weren't laid out for us. I mean, when I put that scene together, I go, wait a minute, how is this going to work? Because 
I was working around, they just shot something very simple and they would play it again and again and go, what is, I don't know, <laughs> very little input from Matt because he's busy shooting. So I don't, so I just try to put it together. But the playback was just to give light on our actors' faces. All that had to be replaced. Everything that you see on the monitor had to be replaced, but not only replaced, but had to be put in there with the timing of how it played against our characters, Alfred and Bruce within the scene itself. The uh, telephone in Colson, the DA's hand, that all had to be cut in there. So when Selena's walking through the club, all that had to be put in there. So those were visual effects challenges that it's a different type of motion capture, but you know you can reinvent something if you had to. I can blow this up, I can put a move on it, make it more impactful. I can do these things. These, these are the tools that I have at hand. Those tools then help us tell the story. Of course, you have to have the resources. I mean, if you're working on a tiny movie and you say, I want to do this, you know, I don't think so. We only have $10,000 for visual effects. Unlike this, so this is what we want and uh, this is what we need and it's budgeted and it's all there. So that's part of our resources on a, on a, on a picture of this size. Mm. Tyler, what about you on a movie like this? I can't remember other than the Fincher stuff, which obviously had VFX in it. Did you learn anything about working on a heavy VFX film from this process? And what was it that you learned? Yeah, this is a, this is a big learning curve for sure. I've always had a, a real interest in visual effects. So like, it wasn't like a fish out of water scenario. Like I, I knew what you could achieve with certain visual effects and enhancements and full CG. I guess the conduit of how to convey that information to a certain people and just the communication of who to talk to and when and what to ask for. Those are the things that were the biggest kind of, not really gotchas, I just that it was a, a methodology to learn. Also, <laughs> I was aware, but not completely, I guess I was surprised by the amount of time that you would be spending in the effects reviews per day. Because <laughs> we were we were on Zoom calls for quite a long time talking about the same visual effect shot over and over and over. Those are very important conversations to have and the amount of information that's conveyed by each participant in that visual effects shot and like the research material that's brought up as reference, all that stuff's really important to talk about to achieve the visual effects that we ended up getting in our movie. Yeah, I thought it was an amazing process. Uh, I just was not uh, completely ready for what I was about to embark on. What kind of a post team did you guys have? We mentioned a VFX editor and we've mentioned a music editor. What was the size of the team and, and who was involved? Well, there was myself and Tyler and and my assistant, Matt Simpson, uh, Tyler's assistant, Ben Insler, made a second uh, assistant editor, uh, Leanne McPauls. We also had a PA. And then we had what amounted to three visual effects editors, Marty Cloner, our lead visual effects editor, and Derek Druin is a second. And then we brought in Mike White as a third because there was just so much so much material to go through and you know those those monitors are there's so many layers to them and they all have to be laid out for the visual effects house they're just really complicated in in that sense but but even then there's other visual effects that the way they exist in the movie doesn't tell you how complicated and difficult some of them were the, the other part is that we were using the volume. We were using the LED screens for no up top of the, the buildings and, and some. So that was really beautiful. And, and uh, fortunately, we didn't need green screen or blue screen there, but that doesn't mean they weren't visual effects because they needed life in those panels too. So that was added. That was added later. You know, in some cases, we, we didn't have Batman's cape because the wind just wouldn't pick it up right. So 
some cases that was CG. There's just a lot of smaller things, not just giant uh, motion capture apes or anything like that. It makes me think that a lot of the job has got to be having a good imagination. Yeah, yeah. That Batmobile coming through the fire, that's wow. real. Wow. That was a real shot. Yeah. That and in the rearview mirror. So that was that was work. So that that particular shot is real. And when you talk about having experience of working on visual effects, you kind of get a sense of the timing of how long something is going. You know, the camera's going like this. So how fast is that camera moving? I mean, if it's if he's walking across and he's walking across like this, but if it's a car going by, you know, it's like this. So how long is that? You just you just have to imagine it. And sometimes we cheat a little bit by taking uh, some shot from another movie or something like that. That that's the speed we want. Just put it in there, and then we tell the visual effects department, "Look, this is the speed we want. So make it like this." And we want the camera to be a little lower, a little higher, but we want to follow it across the screen like that. So that gives them a template of, a, of how to get those shots closer when we first see it. I mean, if if there's nothing that exists there before. How much management are you having to do at work, even Tyler, when you guys are on a movie like this and you want to do the editing, but then there's also, as Tyler pointed out, there's the, oh, there's all these meetings we have with the VFX people and I have people to manage. Luckily, we have a great team that's able to take direction and do a lot of the stuff on their own. And and also our post-advisor, Tina Anderson, is absolutely amazing. She put together this amazing pipeline that she, what Matt was wanting for his DI and, and finishing process. It's basically just delegation of tasks. And in, in Matt Reeves' case, like he has a very specific way he wants to work and has worked that way for multiple movies. So it, it was very simple for Matt Simpson, the bills first to kind of help delegate all these very specific things that Matt Reeves expects when he's working one-on-one with Bill or myself. Once he's done working with Matt for the day, he conveys various things to the VFX editors. But from my perspective, it's, it's a lot of moving parts, but like most people really know the tasks that they're trying to accomplish on a daily basis. There is some voiceover by Bruce slash Batman. Is there anything to talk about there with trying to pace that or finding performance or any of that kind of stuff? I mean, certainly in the script, it gave a blueprint of where it might be. But ultimately, when they finish shooting, you have the picture. And so the pacing of it and the spacing of it is where it's most impactful against the image. And that's kind of how it laid out. I mean, uh, I think the end scene for me had even more impact because it had more emotion to because you've gone through this journey with them. The beginning one, I think, is you're just discovering what's going on and you're trying to catch up with him. But at the end, it becomes much more emotional. He's describing how he feels, you know, against the picture of this woman who's clinging on to him, about to be airlifted out of there, and things like that with this music playing that you've been hearing through the movie, and it's reaching its emotional conclusion here. So it's quite emotional there. So finding the spacing of that and the way it played out, I think it worked out pretty well. It sounds like the way it was written by Matthew, there's not a lot of chance to restructure or juggle scenes around. Is that true? I know that we abbreviate a couple of scenes and it worked for the better, but because of the way Matt laid it out, the movie plays as written. 
probably cool. thing that I think of that it might have I mean small little changes, but not full on structural changes is the intercutting Batman and Selena, like in their their storylines and how they interact as he's cutting off the power and she's confronting her father, as well as the Riddler talking about his plan. I think that's relatively structured as it is, right? I do believe it is. I mean, it's, I think that even within that, it's kind of a normal editing, you know, what works best, what's more impactful here, but it, it chronologically, the way it appears in a picture, I don't, I don't believe anything was changed. Got it. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed talking about this movie and I loved the movie. Thank you. Thank Thanks, you, Steve. That's it for Art of the Cut this week. Thank you so much for listening. Again, if you'd prefer to read this interview with visual support and clips and trailers, head on over to blog.frame.io, where there's a ton of great expert content for filmmakers of all types. Also, check out my book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors, for a topic-driven, curated look at the craft of editing. Thanks to my guests, William Hoy, ACE, and Tyler Nelson. Thanks to Dylan Giovanetto for editing today's podcast using Adobe Audition. And thanks to Frame.io for their support of Art of the Cut and its pledge to keep this content coming your way. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me and feel free to reach out to me on Twitter and Instagram at, at Steve Hallfish. And so you don't miss out on all the great upcoming interviews on the Art of the Cut podcast, subscribe to this podcast. And keep an eye out on Frame.io's YouTube channel for upcoming video episodes of the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hallfish. Thanks for listening. <laughs>